0: section fifty three of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eleven continued robert browning eighteen twelve eighteen eighty nine how good is man's life the mere living how fit to employ all the heart and the soul and the senses forever in joy in this new song of david from browning's saul we have a suggestion of the astonishing vigor and hope that characterize all the works of browning the one poet of the age who after thirty years of continuous work was finally recognized and placed beside tennyson and whom future ages may judge to be a greater poet perhaps even the greatest in our literature since shakespeare the chief difficulty in reading browning is the obscurity of his style which the critics of half a century ago held up to ridicule their attitude toward the poet's early work may be inferred from tennyson's humorous criticism of sordello it may be remembered that the first line of this obscure poem is who will may hear sordello's story told and that the last line is who would has heard sordello's story told tennyson remarked that these were the only lines in the whole poem that he understood and that they were evidently both lies if we attempt to explain this obscurity which puzzled tennyson and many less friendly critics we find that it has many sources first the poet's thought is often obscure or else so extremely subtle that language expresses it imperfectly thoughts hardly to be packed into a narrow act fancies that broke through language and escaped browning's obscurity Second browning is led from one thing to another by his own mental associations and forgets that the reader's associations may be of an entirely different kind third browning is careless in his english and frequently clips his speech giving us a series of ejaculations as we do not quite understand his process of thought we must stop between the ejaculations to trace out the connections fourth browning's allusions are often far-fetched referring to some odd scrap of information which he has picked up in his wide reading and the ordinary reader finds it difficult to trace and understand them Finally, Browning wrote too much and revised too little. The time which he should have given to making one thought clear was used in expressing other thoughts that flitted through his head like a flock of swallows. His field was the individual soul, never exactly alike in any two men, and he sought to express the hidden motives and principles which govern individual action in this field he is like a miner delving underground sending up masses of mingled earth and ore and the reader must sift all this material to separate the gold from the dross here certainly are sufficient reasons for browning's obscurity and we must add the word that the fault seems unpardonable for the simple reason that browning shows himself capable at times of writing directly melodiously and with noble simplicity browning as a teacher so much for the faults which must be faced and overlooked before one finds the treasure that is hidden in browning's poetry of all the poets in our literature no other is so completely so consciously so magnificently a teacher of men he feels his mission of faith and courage in a world of doubt and timidity For thirty years he faced indifference and ridicule, working bravely and cheerfully the while, until he made the world recognize and follow him. The spirit of his whole life is well expressed in his paraclesus, written when he was only twenty two years old. I see my way as birds their trackless way. I shall arrive. What time? What circuit first? I ask not but unless God send his hail or blinding fireballs sleet or stifling snow in some time his good time i shall arrive he guides me and the bird in his good time he is not like so many others an entertaining poet one cannot read him after dinner or when settled in a comfortable easy chair one must sit up and think and be alert when he reads browning if we accept these conditions we shall probably find that browning is the most stimulating poet in our language his influence upon our life is positive and tremendous his strength his joy of life his robust faith and his invincible optimism enter into us making us different and better men after reading him and perhaps the best thing he can say of browning is that his thought is slowly but surely taking possession of all well-educated men and women life browning's father was outwardly a business man a clerk for fifty years in the bank of england inwardly he was an interesting combination of the scholar and the artist with the best tastes of both his mother was a sensitive musical woman evidently very lovely in character the daughter of a german shipowner and merchant who had settled in scotland she was of celtic descent and carlyle describes her as the true type of a scottish gentlewoman from his neck down browning was the typical briton short stocky large-chested robust but even in the lifeless portrait his face changes as we view it from different angles now it is like an english business man now like a german scientist and now it has a curious suggestion of uncle remus these being no doubt so many different reflections of his mixed and unremembered ancestors he was born in camberwell on the outskirts of london in eighteen twelve from his home and from his first school at peckham he could see london and the city lights by night and the smoky chimneys by day had the same powerful fascination for the child that the woods and fields and the beautiful country had for his friend tennyson his schooling was short and desultory his education being attended to by private tutors and by his father who left the boy largely to follow his own inclination like the young milton browning was fond of music and in many of his poems especially in "Opt fogler and a toccata of Galuppi's, he interprets the musical temperament better perhaps than any other writer in our literature but unlike milton through whose poetry there runs a great melody music seems to have had no consistent effect upon his verse which is often so jarring that one must wonder how a musical ear could have endured it like tennyson this boy found his work very early and for fifty years hardly a week passed that he did not write poetry he began at six to produce verses in imitation of byron but fortunately this early work has been lost then he fell under the influence of shelley and his first known work pauline eighteen thirty three must be considered as a tribute to shelley and his poetry tennyson's earliest work poems by two brothers had been published and well paid for five years before but browning could find no publisher who would even consider pauline and the work was published by means of money furnished by an indulgent relative this poem received scant notice from the reviewers who had pounced like hawks on a dovecote upon tennyson's first two modest volumes two years later appeared paraklesus and then his tragedy strafford was put upon the stage but not till sordello was published in eighteen forty did he attract attention enough to be denounced for the obscurity and vagaries of his style six years later in eighteen forty six he suddenly became famous not because he finished in that year his bells and pomegranates which is browning's symbolic name for poetry and thought or singing and sermonizing but because he eloped with the best-known literary woman in england elizabeth barrett whose fame was for many years both before and after her marriage much greater than browning's and who was at first considered superior to tennyson thereafter until his own work compelled attention he was known chiefly as the man who married elizabeth barrett for years this lady had been an almost helpless invalid and it seemed a quixotic thing when browning having failed to gain her family's consent to the marriage carried her off romantically love and italy proved better than her physicians and for fifteen years browning and his wife lived an ideally happy life in pisa and in florence the exquisite romance of their love is preserved in mrs browning's sonnets from the portuguese and in the volume of letters recently published wonderful letters but so tender and intimate that it seems almost a sacrilege for inquisitive eyes to read them mrs browning died in florence in eighteen sixty one the loss seemed at first too much to bear and browning fled with his son to england for the remainder of his life he lived alternately in london and in various parts of italy especially at the palazzo rezzonico in venice which is now an object of pilgrimage to almost every tourist who visits the beautiful city wherever he went he mingled with men and women sociable well-dressed courteous loving crowds and popular applause the very reverse of his friend tennyson his earlier work had been much better appreciated in america than in england but with the publication of the ring and the book in eighteen sixty eight he was at last recognized by his countrymen as one of the greatest of english poets he died in venice on december twelfth eighteen eighty nine the same day that saw the publication of his last work though italy offered him an honored resting-place england claimed him for her own and he lies buried beside tennyson in westminster abbey the spirit of his whole life is magnificently expressed in his own lines in the epilogue of his last book one who never turned his back but marched breast forward never doubted clouds would break never dreamed though right were worsted wrong would triumph Held, we fall to rise, are baffled to fight better, sleep to wake. Works. A glance at even the titles which Browning gave to his best-known volumes, Dramatic Lyrics, 1842, Dramatic Romances and Lyrics, 1845, Men and Women, 1853, Dramatis Persona, 1864, will suggest how strong the dramatic element is in all his work indeed all his poems may be divided into three classes pure dramas like strafford and a blot in the scutcheon dramatic narratives like pippa passes which are dramatic in form but were not meant to be acted and dramatic lyrics like the last ride together which are short poems expressing some strong personal emotion or describing some dramatic episode in human life and in which the hero himself generally tells the story browning and shakespeare though browning is often compared with shakespeare the reader will understand that he has very little of shakespeare's dramatic talent he cannot bring a group of people together and let the actions and words of his characters show us the comedy and tragedy of human life neither can the author be disinterested satisfied as shakespeare was with life itself without drawing any moral conclusions browning has always a moral ready and insists upon giving us his own views of life which shakespeare never does his dramatic power lies in depicting what he himself calls the history of a soul sometimes as in Paraclesus, he endeavors to trace the progress of the human spirit more often he takes some dramatic moment in life some crisis in the ceaseless struggle between good and evil and describes with wonderful insight the hero's own thoughts and feelings but he almost invariably tells us how at such and such a point the good or the evil in his hero must inevitably have triumphed and generally as in my last duchess the speaker adds a word here and there aside from the story which unconsciously shows the kind of man he is it is this power of revealing the soul from within that causes browning to fascinate those who study him long enough his range is enormous and brings all sorts and conditions of men under analysis the musician in abt vogler the artist in andrea del sarto the early christian in a death in the desert the arab horseman in the sailor in erv Kiel, the medieval knight in Child roland the hebrew in saul the greek in balaustion's adventure the monster in caliban the immortal dead in karshish all these and a hundred more histories of the soul show browning's marvelous versatility it is this great range of sympathy with many different types of life that constitutes browning's chief likeness to shakespeare though otherwise there is no comparison between the two men first period of work if we separate all these dramatic poems into three main periods the early from eighteen thirty three to eighteen forty one the middle from eighteen forty one to eighteen sixty eight and the late from eighteen sixty eight to eighteen eighty nine the work of the beginner will be much more easily designated of his early soul studies pauline eighteen thirty three Paraclesis, eighteen thirty five and Sordello, eighteen forty little need be said here except perhaps this that if we begin with these works we shall probably never read anything else by browning and that were a pity it is better to leave these obscure works until his better poems have so attracted us to browning that we will cheerfully endure his worst faults for the sake of his undoubted virtues the same criticism applies though in less degree to his first drama strafford eighteen thirty seven which belongs to the early period of his work second period the merciless criticism which greeted sordello had a wholesome effect on browning as is shown in the better work of his second period moreover his new power was developing rapidly as may be seen by comparing the eight numbers of his famous bells and pomegranates series eighteen forty one eighteen forty six with his earlier work thus the first number of this wonderful series published in eighteen forty one contains pippa passes which is on the whole the most perfect of his longer poems and another number contains a blot in the scutcheon which is the most readable of his dramas even a beginner must be thrilled by the beauty and the power of these two works two other noteworthy dramas of the period are colomb's birthday eighteen forty four and in a balcony eighteen fifty five which however met with scant appreciation on the stage having too much subtle analysis and too little action to satisfy the public nearly all his best lyrics dramas and dramatic poems belong to this middle period of labor and when the ring and the book appeared in eighteen sixty eight he had given to the world the noblest expression of his poetic genius third period in the third period beginning when browning was nearly sixty years old he wrote even more industriously than before and published on an average nearly a volume of poetry a year such volumes as Fifine at the fair red cotton night cap country the inn album Jocoseria, and many others show how browning gains steadily in the power of revealing the hidden springs of human action but he often rambles most tiresomely and in general his work loses in sustained interest it is perhaps significant that most of his best work was done under mrs browning's influence what to read of the short miscellaneous poems there is such an unusual variety that one must hesitate a little in suggesting this or that to the beginner's attention my star evelyn hope wanting is what home thoughts from abroad meeting at night one word more an exquisite tribute to his dead wife prospice Parentheses, look forward songs from pippa passes various love poems like by the fireside and the last ride together the inimitable pied piper and the ballads like herv riel and how they brought the good news these are a mere suggestion expressing only the writer's personal preference but a glance at the contents of Browning's volumes will reveal scores of other poems which another writer might recommend as being better in themselves or more characteristic of Browning note an excellent little book for the beginner is Lovett's selections from Browning end of note soul studies among browning's dramatic soul studies there is also a very wide choice andrea del sarto is one of the best revealing as it does the strength and the weakness of the perfect painter whose love for a soulless woman with a pretty face saddens his life and hampers his best work next in importance to andrea stands an epistle reciting the experiences of karshish an arab physician which is one of the best examples of browning's peculiar method of presenting the truth the half scoffing half earnest and wholly bewildered state of this oriental scientist's mind is clearly indicated between the lines of his letter to his old master his description of lazarus whom he meets by chance and of the state of mind of one who having seen the glories of immortality must live again in the midst of the jumble of trivial and stupendous things which constitute our life forms one of the most original and suggestive poems in our literature my last duchess is a short but very keen analysis of the soul of a selfish man who reveals his character unconsciously by his words of praise concerning his dead wife's picture in the bishop orders his tomb we have another extraordinarily interesting revelation of the mind of a vain and worldly man this time a churchman whose words tell you far more than he dreams about his own character apt fogler undoubtedly one of browning's finest poems is the study of a musician's soul muleke gives us the soul of an arab vain and proud of his fast horse which was never beaten in a race a rival steals the horse and rides away upon her back but used as she is to her master's touch she will not show her best pace to the stranger muleke rides up furiously but instead of striking the thief from his saddle he boasts about his peerless mare saying that if a certain spot on her neck were touched with the rein she could never be overtaken instantly the robber touches the spot and the mare answers with a burst of speed that makes pursuit hopeless Muleke has lost his mare, but he has kept his pride in the unbeaten one and is satisfied. Rabbi ben Ezra, which refuses analysis and which must be read entire to be appreciated, is perhaps the most quoted of all Browning's works and contains the best expression of his own faith in life both here and hereafter all these wonderful poems are again merely a suggestion they indicate simply the works to which one reader turns when he feels mentally vigorous enough to pick up browning another list of soul studies citing a toccata of galupis a grammarian's funeral fra lippolippe saul a death in the desert and soliloquy of the spanish cloister might in another's judgment be more interesting and suggestive pippa passes among browning's longer poems there are two at least which well deserve our study Pippa passes aside from its rare poetical qualities is a study of unconscious influence the idea of the poem was suggested to browning while listening to a gypsy girl singing in the woods near his home but he transfers the scene of the action to a little mountain town of azolo in italy Pippa is a little silk weaver who goes out in the morning to enjoy her one holiday of the whole year as she thinks of her own happiness she is vaguely wishing that she might share it and do some good then with her childish imagination she begins to weave a little romance in which she shares in the happiness of the four greatest and happiest people in azolo it never occurs to her that perhaps there is more of misery than of happiness in the four great ones of whom she dreams and so she goes on her way singing the year's at the spring and day's at the morn morning's at seven the hillside's dew-pearled the lark's on the wing the snail's on the thorn god's in his heaven all's right with the world fate wills it that the words and music of her little songs should come to the ears of four different groups of people at the moment when they are facing the greatest crises of their lives and turn the scale from evil to good but pippa knows nothing of this she enjoys her holiday and goes to bed still singing entirely ignorant of the good she has done in the world with one exception it is the most perfect of all browning's works at best it is not easy nor merely entertaining reading but it richly repays whatever hours we spend in studying it the ring and the book the ring and the book is browning's masterpiece it is an immense poem twice as long as paradise lost and longer by some two thousand lines than the iliad and before we begin the undoubted task of reading it we must understand that there is no interesting story or dramatic development to carry us along in the beginning we have an outline of the story such as it is a horrible story of count guido's murder of his beautiful young wife and browning tells us in detail just when and how he found a book containing the record of the crime and the trial there the story element ends and the symbolism of the book begins the title of the poem is explained by the habit of the old etruscan goldsmiths who in making one of their elaborately chased rings would mix the pure gold with an alloy in order to harden it when the ring was finished acid was poured upon it and the acid ate out the alloy leaving the beautiful design in pure gold Browning purposes to follow the same plan with his literary material, which consists simply of the evidence given at the trial of Guido in Rome in 1698. He intends to mix a poet's fancy with the crude facts and create a beautiful and artistic work. The result of Browning's purpose is a series of monologues, in which the same story is retold nine different times by the different actors in the drama the count the young wife the suspected priest the lawyers the pope who presides at the trial each tells the story and each unconsciously reveals the depths of his own nature in the recital the most interesting of the characters are guido the husband who changes from bold defiance to abject fear caponsacchi the young priest who aids the wife in her flight from her brutal husband and is unjustly accused of false motives pompilia the young wife one of the noblest characters in literature fit in all respects to rank with shakespeare's great heroines and the pope a splendid figure the strongest of all browning's masculine characters when we have read the story as told by these four different actors we have the best of the poet's work and of the most original poem in our language browning and tennyson browning's place and message browning's place in our literature will be better appreciated by comparison with his friend tennyson whom we have just studied in one respect at least these poets are in perfect accord each finds in love the supreme purpose and meaning of life in other respects especially in their methods of approaching the truth the two men are the exact opposites tennyson is first the artist and then the teacher but with browning the message is always the important thing and he is careless too careless of the form in which it is expressed again tennyson is under the influence of the romantic revival and chooses his subjects daintily but all's fish that comes to browning's net he takes comely and ugly subjects with equal pleasure and aims to show that truth lies hidden in both the evil and the good this contrast is all the more striking when we remember that browning's essentially scientific attitude was taken by a man who refused to study science tennyson whose work is always artistic never studied art but was devoted to the sciences while browning whose work is seldom artistic in form thought that art was the most suitable subject for man's study browning's message the two poets differ even more widely in their respective messages tennyson's message reflects the growing order of the age and is summed up in the word law in his view the individual will must be suppressed the self must always be subordinate his resignation is at times almost oriental in its fatalism and occasionally it suggests schopenhauer in its mixture of fate and pessimism browning's message on the other hand is the triumph of the individual will over all obstacles the self is not subordinate but supreme there is nothing oriental nothing doubtful nothing pessimistic in the whole range of his poetry his is the voice of the anglo-saxon standing up in the face of all obstacles and saying i can and i will he is therefore far more radically english than is tennyson and it may be for this reason that he is the more studied and that while youth delights in tennyson manhood is better satisfied with browning because of his invincible will and optimism browning is at present regarded as the poet who has spoken the strongest word of faith to an age of doubt his energy his cheerful courage his faith in life and in the development that awaits us beyond the portals of death are like a bugle call to good living this sums up his present influence upon the minds of those who have learned to appreciate him of the future we can only say that both at home and abroad he seems to be gaining steadily in appreciation as the years go by end of section fifty three